Kathy says she first learned about the automat because she heard the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend, which has the line of kiss baby grand, but it won't pay the rental on your humble flat or help you at the automat. But she said, what's that automat? And then you explained to her what it was. <laughs> I had forgotten that. We're talking today with Lisa Hurwitz, director of the automat. And I had a chance to speak with my mother-in-law, Allison, about how she went to the automat as a young girl with her sister and her mother. I was probably between six and 10 years. This is the 1940s. I was born in 40, so okay. I'm no later than 1950. It was in Manhattan, I think on the north side of West 57th Street, but that's only a guess. I don't mm -hmm. think we went very often. We didn't get to Manhattan very often. And where we were in our lives was we didn't have much money. It was like a special treat. And I remember that I loved the automat. I'm not going to say it was magic because I knew better. I could see the ladies back there. I had to go to my older sister who helped me out a lot because there's a lot I didn't remember. And she says, um, all I remember is that you and I would put nickels in a slot next to a little glass door. My memory was that I would always get creamed spinach. And then she says, mother preferred to go through the regular cafeteria line and get a vegetable plate. And there was a booth where you could change other money into nickels. Was this the first time you had cream spinach? I would guess most likely that this would have been the first time I got a little dish of cream spinach. One thing about the automat, one time we went to a Chinese restaurant and I could only eat the rice. I wouldn't eat any of that Chinese food. So I must have been... Uh, very, didn't like new foods, only like the foods I liked that I was used to. And I'm sure the automat would have been an ideal place because you could see the food. You had choice too, like you would choose. I would have my nickels. I could get what I wanted. I could see what I was going to get and I could make my own choices. I, I love the format. I, I think when I was in like the third grade, I used to be given lunch money and I'd go to the uh, White Castle hamburger place down in the village somewhere. So I knew what it was to sit at a counter and order from a counterman. So I wasn't totally naive, but I loved the, this uh, food that was just always there. If you put in your money, you could just, there was an impersonal quality to the transaction. You were not asking somebody to bring you food. You were just finding it there. Maybe I liked impersonal transactions better. <laughs> <laughs> the way you describe it sounds to me like a progenitor to the digital age, the internet, where we do everything without the personal interaction. Well, yeah, yes, probably true. And then at some point you stopped going. Did you stop going because you grew out of it? Or? Once we moved up to the Upper West Side, my mother was married for the second time and there was more money and we would go out. As a family, we'd go to a restaurant. I wasn't happy going out to dinner. Sometimes the food was very good. Right. But if I said to my mother, oh, this is a show I really want to watch on TV. Can I please stay home? The answer would be no. If they still had automats today, I'd be going to them. Yeah, the last one closed in 1991. That was longer than I would have guessed. Allison's account of her and her family's visits to the automat reflect a lot of what you'll hear in this conversation and see in the documentary, consumer choice, comfort food, and the eventual decline of the automat due to changing mores and changing economics and demographics. 
You can see The Automat at the Film Forum in New York starting February 18th and at the Lemley Royal, the Lemley Town Center, and the Lemley Playhouse in the Los Angeles area starting February 25th. Go to automatmovie.com for more screenings. Coming up, my conversation with Lisa Hurwitz about her new documentary, The Automat. If you like this conversation, please do follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Lisa, welcome to Top Docs. Thanks. Just to start, can you just tell us what the automats were? The automats were these cafeteria restaurant establishments of the 20th century where people would congregate and put coins in slots and take food out of little glass windows. The Horn and Hearted Automats were in New York City and Philadelphia. They are one of the largest restaurant chains in American history of its time. They were the largest and then they lost that position to McDonald's. And the phenomenon lasted almost a hundred years. Uh, so let me ask you a version of the question that Mel Brooks asked you in the film. The Adamats are associated with New York City and Philadelphia. You're a native Angelino. You were living in Seattle when you started this project. At the risk of embarrassing you, I believe you literally were still in diapers when the last Automat closed 30 years ago in 1991. How did you get interested in this subject? I was in diapers and I'm not ashamed of it. I wish someone had brought me and my diaper to the last Automat. I got into it because I was a student in Olympia, Washington, before I moved to Seattle, and I was eating a lot in my college cafeteria, and I just was so fond of my cafeteria, and that got me into researching the history of the cafeteria format, and that brought me to discover the Horn and Hard Art Automats. I didn't even know what an automat was, but I found out about it in my school library, that's when the project began at the very tail end of my college career. In the film, when Mel asks you this, you immediately cut to some shots. And in the background, we hear Alex Sheldoner. Can you talk about his role and the role of his dissertation? In my initial research in my school library, I was consulting with a librarian and she was trying to help me find as much stuff as possible. And we didn't have all that much in our library. And she found that there was a PhD dissertation on the subject that she could request for me through the interlibrary loan. And so she did. And that's when I learned about Alec and his dissertation. I had planned a trip to go to New York City. I was going to see Pee Wee Herman on Broadway, and I was going to see the Automat Archive at the New York Public Library on Fifth Avenue in the Schwartzman building. When I was there at the library in that real iconic space and having this incredible research epiphany, because I had no idea that that was the jackpot and the holy grail of all the Automat story, but it is. I remember I stepped out of the research room and I, I called Alec. I remember just talking to him in the hallway of the New York Public Library. And I was kind of like, hey, would you do this with me? He's a pretty alternative kind of guy and was enthused by the idea and also enthused that he didn't have to do the heavy lifting. Because after you spend so much time doing automat stuff, he was ready to move on and very happy to be able to pass the torch to me. I think he was tired of doing interviews 
He was just the world's go-to person. And people love talking about automats to this day. He has said to me, I'm glad that now you're going to be the point person moving (laughs) forward. We like to discuss openings on our show. It can be challenging and also because they set the tone for the rest of the film. Here you start by showing the view from the window of a car. Yeah. It's way down Highway 209, which is a road that traverses a rural part of Ulster County, New York. That's probably seen better days. As you make your way, we hear Mel Brooks on the phone. It's not clear that the call is actually happening at that moment. He's asking about the project, how it began, how it blossomed, how it ended. And he's, as he summarizes it, and he talks about the little nickels, the little windows. That's the big thing. You got to get that in there. He'll give you his time. He'll write a song. And you ultimately arrive at this warehouse in Ellenville, New York. And we see you unearthing this trove of machinery from the automat. And then you cut fade to a historical black and white image of someone putting in a nickel, opening the door, retrieving some food. And then we hear Mel's full voice, no longer on phone. He gets a reminisce. He talks about what the automat was, mechanism and a little bit of heaven. And then the title and then abrupt cut to Mel suggesting that you do narration to frame the story. Why did you want to start the film with that sequence? Well, it serves as a bookend. We come back to that at the end of the film. And coincidentally, it happened to be our very first day of filming. I think it's pretty rare and nobody holds you to that. You present your film in chronological order. When we arrived to that barn, which looks like a warehouse, it's a barn converted into a storage space. I was expecting something completely different. When I got there, my heart kind of sank because to see the dire condition of the machines in there, it was a moment where I had to pivot my idea because at first I was interested really in Steve, who the barn belongs to, the automatic collector. I just thought, It was so amazing that he was preserving the automats. Uh, Steve is Steve Stolman, an architectural restorer. So the the story kind of shifted for me or my interest shifted. I wanted to now know what happened. How did we get to this giant glamorous empire now being contained in this barn? And this is all that's left. How do things fall apart and what really happened here? It was important to us to try to keep the documentary feeling interesting to folks. It's a historical documentary. So we did as much as we could to bring it to the the present. We even inserted me into the film a a little bit, which wasn't part of the original plan, but we really were trying to kind of level with people and make it feel relatable. So I think that barn was really relatable and also a, a really good hook because You see that and either your heart sinks or you become curious. And the the cell phone stuff with Mel, he and I were um, talking a lot on the phone and I was recording our calls and he did take an interest in telling me what he thought I should do. He wanted to help, as you see, he did. Mel Brooks is a huge character in the film. He comes in reminiscing about the automat. He even provides an original song. He sings at the end, accompanied by an orchestra. I was struck by how much advice you see him giving you. And you know, how did he get involved in this? And what was his role? When I was living in Washington, I helped running this 1920s movie palace where I was a 35 millimeter projectionist. I was directing the town's film festival. I was a board member. And we had a, a guest, Carl Gottlieb, He was there for a screening of Jaws 3D. He was the writer of the film. We became Facebook friends after that. 
Carl is in that circle, that Mel, Carl Reiner's circle. Carl Gottlieb had co-written The Jerk with Carl Reiner. And so Carl Gottlieb had seen my Kickstarter campaign on Facebook. And so Carl sent me a Facebook message saying, the Automat was such an important place for me. I'm so happy you're doing this. I'm actually having Chinese food with Mel Brooks tonight. Would you mind if I mentioned your project to him? Apparently that went over very well. And Mel just kept going on and on during dinner about the Automat. And so that was how I ended up getting introduced to Mel. And he was very generous, immediately not knowing me from Adam to to want to help. It was like this grandfather type vibe. I look young. I'm relatively young. And honestly, I really didn't mind it because first of all, I think it was funny for the film. Maybe for somebody else, it would be annoying, but I, I liked it. It's kind of a compliment when somebody like gives you advice, even if it's unsolicited. You also interviewed the late, great Carl Reiner. You interviewed him and Mel separately, but they constantly anticipate what the other will say, you know, chocolate pudding pie. You really capture their lifelong collaboration and friendship. Oh, thank you. Well, they were supposed to be interviewed together, but I think it worked better this way. It was really coincidental how the two of them finished each other's sentences while not even being interviewed together and how their interviews would correlate with each other. They were talking about the same foods and saying, oh, Mel liked this. Oh, Carl liked this. We're talking about something that they experienced so many decades ago, but that they still remember so clearly. Horn and Hardart were restaurateurs. I believe they opened some baked good shops in Philadelphia. They saw this automated dining system somewhere in Northern Europe, picked it up and actually just brought it to the U.S. Do I have that right? You do. That's crazy, right? Mel calls the automat an insane paradise. They look like these very impressive establishments with the Art Deco exterior, some Art Nouveau touches within, capturing that Viennese coffee culture vibe. Lots of marble, chrome and brass machinery. Can you talk about how you really try to capture that sensual experience of the automat? You're working in a visual medium. How did you try to capture that real sense of what people experience when they went into an automat? My original idea for how we were going to capture it was by interviewing experts. And in the end, a lot of these experts didn't even make it into the film. Mel Brooks with his... I don't know, is Mel, is Mel Brooks a comedian? Is he an art history expert? Is he a, a culinary expert? I don't know, because he seems to wear a lot of hats in the film. When we just had people like him serenading about the, the glamour of the place and how gorgeous all of the elements were. And then there's just such an abundance of archival. We did a really good job of tracking down as much as we could and putting in the best stuff. I knew from the very beginning that it was a kind of a rich subject matter that had a lot of visual assistance available. And that was part of why I decided to move ahead with the project. I felt like I would be able to be successful with this. I knew that it was a topic that people were super interested in that had a wealth of materials available, had people alive still who could talk about it. And then in, in the end, kind of something that it's not so much a, a visual thing, but it, it really helps make the visuals come to life was our incredible orchestra. 
in our score that was written by Hami Mann, who is one of Mel's composers. He composed Robin Hood, Men in Tights, and Dracula, Dead and Loving It. And that goes back to being in Seattle. Hummy and I were neighbors in Seattle. Hummy had left Hollywood. He'd been in Hollywood for a long time and was ready for a, a change of pace. And now he's a film scoring professor in Seattle. He did a great job with the score and the graphics capturing the experience, I think. We were going for an old Hollywood movie kind of vibe. He refers to the type of music that we ended up with as gentleman swing. Some of it is Great American Songbook. Mel's song is definitely Great American Songbook. We also did some, some motion graphics type stuff where we lit up automatic marquees throughout the film. It would have been great to have been able to do more animated sequences, but it was just pretty cost prohibitive. Fortunately, we had really great material to work with. We had like amazing images and archival film of beautiful yeah. automat interiors and exteriors. So one of the things that the fans of the automat note is the inclusivity of the space. So people of all economic backgrounds, social strata, ethnicities, religions, immigrant, NATO, gender, race, gathered in one place, often sharing the same tables. Lisa Keller, who's written a lot about public spaces and now is the editor of the Encyclopedia of New York City, compares it to the New York City subway and the ways it brought people together. How were the automats so successful in this regard? Because I am not a historian by trade, it's hard for me to say for sure exactly that the automat was like the best of these mixing spaces. But for some reason, somehow, it has become like the poster child for talking about inclusive spaces. And that's something that really transcends its own history. This is something that has made its way into the history books of popular culture. The Automat was one of the greatest mixing spaces of the 20th century. I think how it got there probably has to do with what an important place New York City was during the last hundred years, how it was a time of people coming to America, arriving here in New York City. Even if you didn't arrive here as an immigrant to New York City, if you came to New York City on a vacation, the automat was a place you would go to. This somehow just ended up being one of the places to go to, and they developed a reputation for being a place that everyone could go to and where you could hang out all day. One of the things that one of your folks suggests is that just the notion that you'd have to be able to speak English to order. You just would go up, put your nickel in and get the food. I think is really a good point that never dawned on me. Because know. everything was behind the little glass windows, you could see what it was. You didn't have to read a menu. On the side of the window, it would say what was in there. There was signage, but you could just look. The Automat also had a presence in the growing meatscape of post-war America. When we were talking about the great lore of the Automat and how it turned into this mythologized space, it also had a ton to do with how the Automat was being portrayed by the media. It was in newspaper columns. It was in cartoon strips. It was on the radio. It was in major motion pictures, television shows. It lent itself so well to the camera or even to the pen. I don't know when they brought it to America if part of what they were thinking was, oh God, the media is just going to eat this up. Because they did. It was 
part of how they became so successful was that everyone wanted to talk about it and show it and go there. It was just such a spectacle. As you know, the Automat made its way into many films. And I think one aspect of the Automat that's highlighted in films is something that they get wrong, or maybe it's better to say they exploit it, which is you'll see scenes where, for example, Doris Day goes up, opens the compartment, and she sees her friend behind and they discuss what they're going to do that evening, say. In reality, people talk about how the compartment doors completely obscured the machinery behind it, obscured the people. Howard Schultz talks about the magic of that moment. Colin Powell says, I knew there were people behind there, but, you know. And Candy Camera, of course, does this great thing where they snatch the rollback that you just purchased. So can you talk about how the, the kind of the machinery of the automat cast this spell that it, it really was a sort of industrial age magic? For everybody who went there, but particularly for children who went there, the Automat was a really magical wonderland. And kids who are now grown adults that I've spoken to, they remember very clearly that experience of serving themselves. It was like a game and they got to handle money. They got to choose what they wanted. And being a kid, you don't usually get to necessarily choose what you're going to eat, but kids were given free reign to eat what they wanted when they went there. And everybody I spoke to who described the experience of going as a kid, for some reason, you, you would think that parents would say, no, you need to put the nickel in the salad cubby. But that's not what I was told. I was really told that kids were given free reign to choose what they wanted. Their parents gave them that when they went there. I think that the technology part of it, that magic was like turn of the century. And then as time went on, I think that the machine Machines, the kind of magic of it was more about sharing something with family and loved ones. People really talked to me about the magic of going there with their grandparents or with their parents and having this multi-generational experience. But I think that it was fun and it didn't matter what age you were. It was, I'm trying to think about things that we just like the way that today we sometimes I just prefer to use myself, my iPhone to look up things on the internet instead of using my laptop. Even if I have my laptop right there, it's just this tactile experience. Alec notes in the film, the number of stenographers in New York City around the turn of the century went from a few thousand to hundreds of thousands in a very short period of time. And ever growing number of these were women. The Automat provided a place where a woman could eat at lunch for a reasonable price. They could feel safe in groups or even alone. Can you just talk about the importance of the Automat to women? The Automat was a hugely important place for women. It should be noted, though, that there were lots of these kinds of cafeterias popping up at that time around the, the 20s in New York City where women were going. There was also the child's cafeteria chain, which was a huge competitor of Horn and Hard Art. However, the thing is, most of those cafeterias didn't survive the Great Depression, which was a time when Horn and Hard Art was doing some of its best business because their prices were so low. They had such an immaculate reputation. Everyone with the limited money that they did have, that's where they were choosing to go. And so... Horn and Harder, its competitors were just dropping like flies, but they were a place where women could go without a man, a place that was affordable to go to, that was clean, that was pristine, tasteful, also a place that would be flexible with hiring women. 
I've sp spoken to women who worked there. I've seen advertisements where Horn and Hardart was advertising, looking for women. They were advertising saying, we'll work with your schedule basically after you drop the kids off until you have to pick them up. They just had a very accommodating is one of the, the great words you could use to describe their company values. There are some accounts that African-American workers were paid less than others and not prevented in some of the roles of the automat. I got that from the book, you know, one of, one of the, whose authors is Marion Hardert, a descendant of the original founders. But we do see an integrationist ethos at the stores themselves and that these rubbed off on everyone from Wilson Good, the former mayor of Philadelphia, to General Colin Powell, and in a sense, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Do you want to just talk about how that integrationist ethos affected one or all of those folks? Horn and Hardart was like an emblem for this concept of racial integration in restaurants. They weren't the only place that was doing it. And New York City was pretty integrated by the time that Automat was in its heyday. Wilson Good was saying how Philadelphia still had segregated bowling alleys and ice skating rinks at the time he was going to the Automat, but that the city was mostly integrated. But the thing is, it really just became a symbol for integration because it was such a major restaurant chain and it was a place you would go so often. And it was a place that, as the mayor uh, expressed, it made you feel dignified as an African-American to be going there. That was one of the great things about Horn and Harder in its heyday. They offered a really wonderful experience at a very low cost. Ruth Bader Ginsburg, in her interview, she talks about how the automat is a reminder that we're in the, the great USA, quoting her, with people of all backgrounds from all walks of life. So Good says that really the foundation of the first African-Americans who took political power in Philadelphia, they actually met above the automat. It was literally the place where a lot of the thinking around how do we actually take control of the city happened. They were on the second floor of the Automat. Right. It was their meeting spot to go to the Horn and Hard Art and to plot their movement. Let's talk a bit about the decline of the Automat. I think you do a really great job of portraying the forces that brought down the Automat. Deep demographic trends exacerbated by poor strategic choices. So let's start with some of the trends, you know, the move to suburbs, changing general roles, frozen foods. What are some of the trends that led to the decline of the automat? After World War II, it was a time of prosperity, especially in comparison to the Great Depression, which was a time where the automat was thriving. It was a time when everyone felt they were all in this together and everyone needed a place to go and everybody was struggling for the most part. And as Lisa Keller mentions, the Automat was a, a warm, welcoming place in the worst of times. But in post-war prosperity, people had more. People also were choosing to leave the city to move to larger homes in suburbs. They began commuting into the city. And that posed a huge problem because people weren't eating three meals a day in the Automat anymore. And this is also kind of hard to understand today, but people would go eat there three times a day, but people left. And so business declined. When people left the cities and stopped living on top of each other, 
people didn't want to do that anymore. They had the luxury now of choosing not to. They also didn't want to sit at communal tables with strangers anymore. And that was a core part of the cafeteria format and the automat style. Tastes in food were changing. This kind of American comfort food was not the most popular cuisine at the moment. People were willing to spend more on food. It was a little bit of a turnoff how relatively inexpensive the automat food was. Eventually, the world wasn't enthused by the automat anymore as a, a dining format. It was very technological, state-of-the-art for 1900, but by the 1980s, it was old-fashioned. With fewer people there, Horn and Hardart really needed to gracefully downsize. They really weren't able to they were kind of locked in in a lot of ways. They were locked into these long leases. They were locked into having these giant commissaries in New York and Philadelphia with the really high capacity for food production that they didn't fully need anymore. They were not able to scale back gracefully. Wondering why you chose to put in the commercials. One is of executives in a boardroom fretting about the price of coffee. The commercial about the coffee was great because... In terms of trying to pinpoint why exactly things started to go downhill for Horn and Hart, the real answer had to do with inflation and prices going up and the rise of a cup of coffee there from five cents to 10 cents, which was catastrophic for the company. It's debatable whether the, it was such a good idea for them to make such a, a self, not self-deprecating Maybe that's the, how you would describe it. This commercial was the slogan for this advertising campaign was, it's so good we lose money on it. That commercial really captured the, the time and kind of the dire situation. The, the commercial was screaming, like, please buy our coffee. We're, we need you to. We're losing money. And they, they never did recover. They, business dropped really drastically when they raised the, the price of the cup of coffee. And for, for those who haven't seen the film yet, they had to raise it from five cents to 10 cents because the automat machines couldn't take pennies. They could at that time only take nickels. You note that because they had all this valuable real estate, one of the things they did was basically replace the automats with franchises. Is Horn and Harder still in business today? If I go to a Burger King in Midtown Manhattan, am I giving to Horn and Harder? Horn and Harder became the first franchisees in Manhattan of Burger Kings and Arby's and Bojangles, it was a license. So no, when you look at the lineage of Horn and Hardart and what it became, there were two companies. There was the Philadelphia company, which today is owned by a family. They owned the Horn and Hardart brands in Philadelphia. In New York, they turned into a, a catalog company called Hanover Direct. That was one of the side businesses that Horn and Hardart was pursuing when they were trying to save themselves. They were opening up restaurants because you know the cafeteria format was out, more upscale dining was in. So they were opening up restaurants, but also they got into the catalog business of that catalog company. The one catalog that survived was the company store, which was acquired by Home Depot a few years ago. So the New York Horn and Hard Art became Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
That's funny. As far as the legacy of the automat, I think the architectural resource, Steve Stolman, suggests that the spirit lives on in the inclusive example of the automat. We talked a little bit about how that affected Colin Powell, RGB, others. But did you want to add anything to that? How do you think that spirit lives on? Do we see it anywhere? I love that we have that line of Steve's in the film about how the automat lives on and the people who experienced it, because I couldn't agree more for the people who are opening up new kind of automat concepts today. I wish them all the best with that. But at the end of the day, I do really believe that when we're talking about the spirit of the automat and how it lives on, it's all about memory and how the experiences in our lives change us. And then how it's just this chain reaction. For me, that is how it lives on. And it lives on in the the documentary. And these stories are just going to keep getting passed on because the automat was a remarkable, really fascinating place. Another way it lives on is very tangible, which is in Starbucks. I'm beginning to see a Seattle pattern here. So Howard Schultz, not quite the founder of Starbucks, but arguably the driving force behind his success, tells about how he came to New York at 10 years old, went to the automat, and he said became a merchant, I think he said, that very day. He has sought to be a storyteller, trying to create the romance and the sense of discovery that he saw that first day. Do you think Starbucks does capture that atmosphere, ethos, spirit of the automat? Before I ever knew that Horn and Hardart had played a pivotal role in Howard's life, I already knew that I liked certain Starbucks locations as places that I could go and I could hang out and do work. Steve, when I interviewed him, it was the very first day of filming. We went up to his barn to film. And then when I asked him how the automat lives on, and he says, in the lives of the people who went there and maybe Starbucks, it was just, it wasn't like a a line that we had flagged as, oh, we want to put that line in the film. Later on, I was interviewing Marianne Hardart, the co-author of the book that you mentioned. And she said, by the way, Howard had a new autobiography out. And on the dedication page, he dedicated it to the automat. There's a picture of the automat on that page. And I had no idea, having invested so much of my time into this project, me thinking it's important to learn that one of the most arguably influential people in the restaurant food industry, Howard Schultz, that he thought it was important, so important that it was one of his inspirations to create today's big coffee empire. You know, the Automat was the coffee empire of New York at that time. Today it's Starbucks. It was a really gratifying moment for me to know that this hunch that I had, that this thing here was important that it really was, it felt pretty amazing. Is there anyone you wanted to thank in particular for their help on the film? If I could thank only one person, it would be my mom because she really believed in me and has been my number one cheerleader and she keeps showing up at film festivals. She's my groupie. So thank you, mom. She did Kickstarter for this, which really seems fitting to me in some ways, because the automat is sort of an icon of inclusivity. And here you have a platform in Kickstarter where anyone can step up and support the project. The Kickstarter was a huge launching pad for us. It helped us find a base of support, not just financial, but these became like our people. We have a very vibrant automat group on Facebook. Uh, It's just facebook.com slash the automat, the movie. These people, they've become friends. 
I wouldn't have imagined that I'd be one of those people someday that's saying, oh yeah, I'm meeting people off the internet. Kickstarter, it's a pain in the butt. It's stressful. It's kind of, you know, demeaning, begging people for money, but it helped us out a lot. It, it really got us going. Let's talk about some of the dates. February 18th, the Automat will be at the Film Forum in New York. And also February 25th at the Lemley Royal in Los Angeles. And you'll be doing Q&As at both these. Yes, we will. And then we've got more screenings at automatmovie.com. Alex's dissertation was called Trap Behind the Automat, Technological Systems and the American Restaurant, 1902 to 1991. And the book is The Automat, The History, Recipes, and Allure of Horned Hardert's Masterpiece. And it's by Lorraine B. Deal and Marion Hardert, who you interview in the film and who are just uh, lovely and delightful. Nostalgia sometimes gets a bad name, but this is a wonderful nostalgic film. Not only captures the essence of the experience going to the Automat, but it explains the important role that the Automat played in American culture, consumer culture, but in the broader democratic spirit of the United States. Congratulations. I know this is your first feature documentary. You really nailed it. And I can't wait to see what you're doing next. Thank you. I like what you just said about how nostalgia gets a bad rap sometimes. I, I think it's really important and healthy to reflect back. Ideally, when we look back, it somehow changes us or is a transformative thing. I really am pleased that our film I, I know that when people watch it, whether they experience the automat or not, it does make them think. And I, I think it leaves people, even people who didn't go there, I think it leaves them a little nostalgic. And I think they want to carry that nostalgia forward. For me, one of the great takeaways of the, the film and that I think other people are taking away is the value in creating wonderful things. I hope that as a result of seeing the film, it might spark some new ideas for people about incredible things that they can create. Lisa, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Do you have a hidden gem of film that you don't think gets the attention that it should? It's hard to name only one, but I think I would pick AKA Doc Palmas, which was directed by Peter Miller. It was a very influential film for this film. It was a historical documentary that really, it moved me and it got me interested in a subject matter that frankly, it's not something that I would normally be interested in. The topic was one of the most prolific songwriters of the past century, who was a Jew with polio. He lived an incredible life. It really did justice to this topic and brought it to life in a way that I wouldn't have thought possible. And it, it became an important point of reference. The director, producer of that film is actually one of my consulting producers. 